The book of Revelation, chapter 4. We're going to dive right into our text. Verse 1. After these things I looked, and, and if you haven't been with us, I should add that I, this first person, is the Apostle John. He's writing for us. So when he says I, this is John. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Unique to this manuscript is the fact that Jesus himself provides for us, at the end of the first chapter, an outline for the way this incredible revelation of himself would unfold. Back in chapter 1, after providing the reader a general introduction, a greeting, John recounts the very specific moment that he received this spectacular revelation of Jesus. While exiled by Rome to the prison island of Patmos, John writes how he was caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He then hears this loud voice coming from behind him, only to turn around and see the glorified, resurrected Jesus in the midst of his church, represented by these seven golden lampstands. Overwhelmed by the awesomeness of the scene that he was beholding, the scene he was witnessing, John remembers and he writes that he fell down at Jesus' feet as though he were dead. It's within that context that Jesus not only comes to John, this elderly apostle, this old man, laying his hand on him, encouraging him, telling him not to be afraid. But it's at this juncture, within that context, that Jesus tells John to write three specific things. He says, write the things which you have seen. Past tense, which is clearly a reference to this revelation that he's just experienced. Jesus tells him then to write the things which are, present tense, before writing the things which will take place after this, or after the things which are, which is a future tense. Now, as a student of Scripture, please note that there is little to no scholarly disagreement that the third section of this threefold outline begins with the first verse of Revelation 4 which then naturally leaves the seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches in Asia, these seven epistles, as the, the second designation, chapters 2 and 3. So chapter 1, write the things which you have seen, first section. Write the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, these seven letters, the final section, write the things which, uh, which will come after that. The fourth section, uh, this third section in the fourth chapter, there is little doubt that this is a transition. And here's why. John opens chapter 4. Again, look, he says, after these things. I looked. And in doing this, John is, is using the identical phrase originally articulated by Jesus in the outline in Revelation 1, verse 19. In, in Revelation 1, 19, Jesus says, write the things which will take place after this. In the original Greek language, the phrase that's used in both instances is metatauta, making the shift here in chapter 4, verse 1, undeniable. In fact, if that couldn't be more evident, metatauta is then used a second time by John at the end of verse 1 when Jesus instructs him to come up here so that he could show him 
things which must take place after this, metatalta. Like the transition, my point, is absolutely clear. Undeniable, little to no scholarly disagreement. Now knowing that Revelation 4 initiates, activates, this new section, this third and final section of the book of Revelation, the logical question that really proves relevant as to the timing of the events and the descriptions contained in the remaining chapters is while we understand the things we're going to read will take place after this, the question is, is after what exactly, right? After, okay, I get it, it's after something, but after what? Within the chronology of the way that John receives this revelation, some scholars try to argue that after this, and the larger outline, just refers to the, the flow of the book itself. It really has nothing to do, some will argue, uh, marking a transition uh, between the church age or the church or any of those things. As such, they'll make the argument that the first verse of chapter 4 is kind of just John's way of letting us know that the things he's about to write about come after he's finished dictating these seven letters. And while I can concede absolutely that that is probably true, and is this very simple explanation, the problems with such a simple reading of Metatalta or after this are numerous. I'm going to give you a few. First, those who make the argument I just laid out do so for a reason. They do so because they generally deny a futuristic interpretation of the events recorded between Revelation 6 all the way through Revelation 19 verse 10. I would also add that, that this position leads to a total butchering of the heavenly scene we're going to look at in chapters 4 and 5. As we'll discover in the weeks ahead, the issue with such a position is that the events recorded by John in this third section, the events we'll look at, have zero, none whatsoever historical fulfillment. Like that necessitates in and of itself a future reading. And if you reject that at a minimum, the only way you can explain these things is to kind of abandon any type or any semblance of a literal understanding if you deny a future reading. Like you can't actually avoid the fact that if these things happen after John finishes scribing these seven letters, like we find ourselves today still waiting for them to happen. Like secondly, such an argument ignores the mountain of textual evidence that these seven letters were written by Jesus not just to local churches in Asia Minor at the end of the first century, but that Jesus was writing to the church as a whole. Like I don't want to belabor this point because we've spent the last seven weeks carefully and thoroughly working our way through each of these seven letters, but the evidence that Jesus is addressing his church throughout all of time using these seven letters, kind of the historical understanding of it, it's overwhelming. Like aside from the fact that the subject matter of each letter perfectly corresponds to a section, a movement within church history, within four of the seven, continuing two and in three cases into the Great Tribulation, if you deny such a, an application or interpretation, you do have some important questions to answer. Like, why would Jesus write to seven churches 
if there wasn't anything significant to the fact that he picked seven. That would be bizarre. Like, I mean, it's highly unlikely that the number seven throughout all of the Bible would be used to signify completion. Seven days to week, seven notes to a scale, seven completion. Only for now, at the end of the book, the Bible, Jesus to completely abandon the precedent. It's unlikely. Beyond this, if there wasn't more being addressed in these letters by Jesus, why would he decide to write to specifically these seven churches? I noted earlier that there were much larger, more prominent church communities in Asia Minor that Jesus could have chosen that would have been more relevant, pertinent. You see, it defies reason that Jesus didn't single out, yes, seven, but these seven for a very particular and intentional reason. If we're being honest, the ultimate reason that some resist this broader interpretation of the seven letters centers on the clear and obvious implication. Like it's without dispute that if Jesus was addressing the entire church throughout all time in chapters 2 and 3, then the way you read John's transition, this metatauta, in Revelation 4 verse 1, becomes much different. Like think about it. If the things which are refers to the church age, the second section of the book, chapters 2 and 3, then the transition after these things, and therefore all the apocalyptic events that begin in Revelation 6, must describe a future time on the earth in which the church does not exist, what we would call a churchless age. For post-millennialists, these are people who don't believe that there will be any tribulation at all or mid-tribulationalists, those who believe the church will have to endure half of the tribulation, or post-tribulationalists, those who believe that the church will have to endure the entire uh, tribulation. They reject this because it doesn't align with their eschatology or their, their reading of the end. And if you're unsure where you happen to fall across this spectrum, you're like, I don't know if the church will be in the tribulation, if there's a tribulation at all, if it'll be in the middle, if it'll be at the end, if it'll be before. I really don't know where I, I line up. It's worth mentioning that following chapter 3, the church is never mentioned again in the book of Revelation. Not once. In fact, in the final few chapters, when we get to the second coming of Jesus his millennial reign on the earth, the ushering in of eternity, we will only have mention of, quote, the saints of God. No church, no Israel, just the saints. So if you're a preterist, believing that the book of Revelation has already happened somehow in 70 AD, and that reality is very difficult to explain. If these things have happened, then why isn't there a mention of the church? Like one additional thought I believe directly ties into this discussion. And I've studied the book of Revelation for years, and this was a new insight that the Lord gave me, something I had never seen before. But it's interesting, the change that occurs in the way that John describes the glorified Jesus and his activity in Revelation 1 and the way that he describes Jesus in Revelation 5. Like in Revelation 1, as we've already seen, Jesus is adorned with the garments of the high priest, isn't he? 
And what's he doing? He's in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. As high priest, he's in the midst of his church, which is why he then writes these letters. So that's what he's doing in Revelation 1. High priest dealing with the church. And yet, in contrast, in the heavenly scene of chapter 5, John sees Jesus not as a high priest in the midst of his church. No, he sees Jesus as a lamb, as though he had been slain, coming, taking the scroll, loosening the seals, releasing judgments on the earth. Like, there's no question that something has to happen between these four chapters that necessitated a transformation of Jesus, his present role, and current activity. In the heavenly scene of the future, Jesus is no longer tending to his church. He's actively judging the world. In the end, I'm convinced that the timeline of the book of Revelation substantiates the position that the church will not be present on the earth during this future tribulational period. Not only is this position consistent with Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, as well as a sermon given by Jesus known as the Olivet Discourse, in which these seven final years are set aside, the tribulation set aside, so that God would finish his work with Israel, as well as judge the world of her sin and wickedness. But this position is also, I believe, consistent with what we know concerning the heart of God and the promises of Jesus. Like aside from the numerous precedents in Scripture of of God intentionally going out of his way to, to remove the righteous before casting out judgment. Great example, Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham argued, if there's righteous, if there's righteous people, can you withhold judgment? They negotiate, and God's fine. Like, if there's ten, I won't judge. But there weren't ten. So God had to save Lot and his family and then rain down fire and brimstone, a divine judgment. So, so we know this about God, that God removes the righteous before judging the wicked. But, like, to a church, I, I love this passage, to a church that was worried that they had missed Jesus' coming. There had been some false teachers that went into the city of Thessalonica. They were teaching the church that Jesus had already come. They had been left behind. And hearing about this, the Apostle Paul, he writes to these believers in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 through 11, he says, he says, guys, chill out. Why? God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him, Therefore, comfort one another, edify one another, just as you are also doing. You know, you know, I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating that I think it's just insulting for those to suggest you know, that the church will be in the tribulation before, like in the tribulation at all. It's insulting to me to suggest that Jesus the groom would beat up his bride before the honeymoon. Like that doesn't make sense to me. Like, in fact, to the faithful church of Philadelphia, and we notice this in his letter, Jesus promises, Revelation 3, verse 10, he says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Something we haven't seen before. Like, I'm convinced that this promise by Jesus to deliver the faithful church from this global trial designed to test the entire world requires nothing but a pre-tribulational view or understanding of the rapture. Now, building on this idea, one of the main reasons that many do have a hard time 
accepting this understanding of metatalta, this transition, or have a hard time believing that the church will be absent from the earth during the tribulational period, centers on a, a rejection of the doctrine that weaves itself throughout the Bible known as the rapture of the church. And if you don't know anything about the rapture of the church, if that idea is new to you, I'll give you a very simple definition. The rapture is the belief that there is a future moment in time when everyone who was going to accept Jesus as their Savior will have done so, which will then immediately enable Jesus to supernaturally call his church home from the earth to be with him in heaven. In Romans 11 verse 25, the idea is actually referred to as the fullness of the Gentiles. Concerning what actually happens with the rapture, the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 52, he says that there's a moment where in a twinkling of an eye, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we, those who are alive, will be changed or transformed. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, 17, and 18, Paul says that the Lord, speaking of the rapture, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. The, you know, they're six feet deep, so they need a head start. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive and remain shall be caught up, or literally raptura, raptured, with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Comfort one another with these words. Now, on account of these various passages of Scripture, as well as this outline that Jesus establishes in the book of Revelation, I believe, beginning with chapter 4, everything we read must take place after these things. After what things? After the church has been raptured from the earth. I know some of you might be sitting there thinking, Pastor Zach, like, I'm sorry, but that whole rapture thing, that sounds just a little too weird for me to believe. I, I hate to break it to you, but it kind of sounds like, you know, you're describing a scenario where we're all sitting around wearing tinfoil hats, drinking Kool-Aid, looking for the Hellbop comet to come by and take us to the mothership. Bear with me for a moment, but I do want to address that sentiment because I have found that, that that's one of the, the biggest hindrances to people accepting the idea of the rapture is that it, it does sound weird to say there's going to be a moment when, boom, we're gone. If that's you, and you don't feel like you can believe in the rapture of the church because it sounds weird, I have to ask you, what book have you been reading? Because the Bible is filled with all kinds of crazy things. Things crazier. I'll give you exhibit A. The fact that God would love you enough to send his son to die for you, that is nuts. That's crazy. Like, in fact, the notion that God could or would supernaturally rapture someone from one location, instantly placing them in another, whether it's on earth or in heaven, that idea is not without biblical precedent. I'll give you a few examples. In the midst of a genealogy, a chapter you often skip because it's a list of names, Genesis 5. Tucked in the middle, there's this bizarre, strange account of a guy named Enoch. Interestingly, Jude tells us that Enoch was an end times prophet talking about the coming judgment of God. We're told, bizarrely, 
that one day, verse 24 of Genesis 5, Enoch was walking with God and was not, for God took him. How, how do you think his wife felt? Like the old boy went out for a walk. It was time to go home, and God was like, yeah, just come hang out with me. And ba-boom, he was walking with God and was not, for God took him. Yeah, I, I, there's another scene. Again, I, the, the, the lead-in is bizarre. Elijah's chilling with his boy Elisha. Very confusing that their names are that similar, but, you know, it is what it is. And they get to the Jordan River, and they got to get to the other side, so Elijah decides to do, you know, what everybody would do. He takes off his coat, and he smacks the water, and it parts. That's cool. And they walk across, and they're just chilling. Let, let, let me read you what happens next. This is in 2 Kings 2. We read, then it happened as Elijah and Elisha continued on and, and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire, separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. <laughs> Again, if you think, I can't believe that rapture thing, because it just sounds weird. You got the wrong book in your hand. Uh, how about an example from the New Testament? In Acts chapter 8, we read that Philip, who was this cool evangelist, He's on this deserted road between Jerusalem and Gaza. There's this chariot. The Ethiopian ends up getting saved. He's like, I want to get baptized. Philip's like, there's some water. Let's do this. We're told that when, the, when Philip and the Ethiopian came out of the water, that the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more. The eunuch went on his way rejoicing, but Philip was found at Zotos, and passing through, preaching all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Like imagine, imagine if we're doing a baptism one Sunday, and I take you down into the water, and then you come up, and boom, I'm gone. And then you go to El Real, and I'm already there, I've reserved the table, and we're hanging out. Again, my point is, like, if you think that the rapture. Just can't believe in it. In the beginning, God. After that, if you can get through the first four words, I mean, there's nothing that should take you off guard or that is too unbelievable. I got one more example for you, like if you need crazy, okay? How about this one? After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven... And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne sat in heaven and one was sat on the throne. Was John experiencing a little early rapture practice? Maybe. Now John, the progression of things is interesting. You know, he's already experienced, so, so he's on the island of Patmos, he's been exiled there, he's in prison, this labor camp. He tells us that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So he's already found himself experiencing some type of supernatural event, right, in chapter 1. That event leads to this revelation of the glorified Jesus, and then he starts dictating these letters. But now, when you get to chapter 4, after the letters, John is saying that he's now experiencing another type of like this radical moment of sorts. 
So he was in the, he's in the Spirit again. Now, according to his own account, after Jesus finishes his dictation, John says he looked and, and beheld. Or literally, he looks up, he sees something, and his attention becomes occupied, obsessed with it. And what was it? This door standing open in heaven. So this is what he sees. He's describing it. He's standing there in, in a bit of awe, contemplation. What is this? And then he says he hears an audible voice, like a trumpet, speaking to him with the instructions that he come up here. Now keep in mind that the voice that John heard was not an actual trumpet, but only sounded like a trumpet, which, which gives the idea that the voice itself, it was loud, we can, we can figure that, it was distinctive, and likely authoritative, like a trumpet. Additionally, John, he can't see who it is that's speaking to him, likely from the other side of the door. But he recognizes that the voice, in addition to being like a trumpet, was like, it was the first voice, he says, which I heard. Now, in the Greek, protos, first, it can mean first in order, or first with regards to rank. Either way, you interpret it. It's clear that this was the voice of Jesus. It's the first voice he heard. And it is the most important voice he will hear. And Jesus is directing him, right, to come up to heaven through the open door. Why? So Jesus could show John the things which must take place after this. And again, after the church age has come to a completion with the church raptured home. John says that upon receiving this command from Jesus, immediately he was in the Spirit. Which means that Jesus gave him the instruction and then Jesus enabled this transformation, this movement. So it wasn't like John like, is trying to jump up through the door. Like Jesus gave an instruction. John's like, I'm cool. Boom, it happened. He goes through the door. And he finds himself now in the halls of heaven. And, and, and what does he see? He says, I saw a throne. Imagine this, a throne. He knows what a throne looks like. So there's a throne. In heaven. And there's one sitting on the throne. Now of this particular experience, there's two things that are clear that you should take note of. First, because John's experience is coming after the church age, he's taken by the Spirit from the tail end of the first century into what's still future, right? Because we haven't been raptured yet. And he's taken there to do what? To witness and write about the things which must come after these things. So it's important to note that before we even get to the particulars of all that John sees in the future, they're in the future, and also note, they must happen. Did you notice that? The word must. These are not things that might happen, or there's a chance. 50, 50, no, they will happen. So what we see, and what we'll read about, and what we'll study, is the future. It's not a prediction of the future. It's not a guess of the future. It is the future. These things must happen. They will happen. Second thing you should note is that John's first experience now as a time traveler. This is a good way to think of it. He's a time traveler, right? His first experience in the future happens where? It's in heaven. So that's his first future experience. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul, 
describes a similar experience in heaven. He says that 14 years ago, he adds, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, I was caught up to the third heaven and to paradise. And then he says that what he saw, what he heard, these inexpressible words, like he couldn't describe them as what he's saying. He says it's not even lawful for a man to utter. Like in Paul's exploit, he says that what he saw in heaven, what he experienced in heaven, was so completely overwhelming that Paul felt like it would be wrong for him to even attempt to use human words to describe heavenly wonders. Which is why I'm always suspicious of people who claim to have seen the afterlife and write books about it. Because if Paul, who was a man not known to be short on words, saw it, we know he did because it's inspired by the Spirit, if he's like, yeah, what I saw, there's not human words for me to even attempt an explanation, but then someone's like, yeah, I was in a car accident for like 90 seconds, I was in heaven, and I've got like 400 pages to tell you all about it for 1999. I'm just skeptical, I'm just saying. Just, just skeptical. So Paul's like, yeah, I'm not even going to attempt this. Thanks, Paul. That being said, in John's situation, like Jesus told him to write what he saw, right? So John, it would have been way easier to be like, yeah, I was in heaven, I can't, like I'm with Paul. Just when you get there, you're there. But John's been told to write about it. So he doesn't have the same type of luxury that Paul did. He has to write the things that he saw because Jesus told him to. Which explains to us why, moving forward, John will use the word like so often you think he's a, like a blonde-headed valley girl. Like, 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 like. It was like this, it was like that. Like he's, he uses like over and over and over and over. Why? Because he's, he's really struggling. Like he's linguistically limited. And like the words to use to try to describe what he's seeing because there's just not words to use. So he struggles. The other thing that this kind of tells us is, is Paul's experience where he's like, he's like, listen, whether I was in the body or out of the body, I got no idea. I think that, that explains why, why John just tells us, like, I was in the spirit. Like, I don't know if, if my body was taken into the future or this was like a spirit. Like, John doesn't tell us because I don't think he knew. I don't think he was aware, so he, he kind of just vaguely is like, I was in the Spirit, taken to heaven. Now, before we get into the things that John witnesses, and yes, we will cover the whole chapter this morning. I do want to point out that while awesome in and of itself, please keep this in mind, this is important. John's description of heaven, it's awesome, it's incredible, it's revolutionary, it's incomplete. Like, you need to know that going into this. Like, it's incomplete. Like, in fact, there are a lot of things that the Bible tells us about heaven that John doesn't make any mention of. Like, as we're about to see, John will start kind of in the center. And then he'll describe things moving away from the center, from that vantage point. But it's not inclusive, all-inclusive. In fact, in a lot of ways, I believe that John is really only providing us in chapters 4 and 5 a glimpse, not into all of heaven, but a glimpse into the throne room of heaven, where the presence of God is. So what we're going to see about heaven is awesome. You'll see it. This is your future. But this is not what heaven is completely limited to. There's much more that the Bible talks about. Now notice, again, let's get to it. 
John's in heaven. Boom, first moment. What catches his attention? There's a throne. A throne set in heaven, he says. Or more accurately, there's a throne established in the heavenlies. Like as the central focal point of heaven, I want you to know that there exists an actual, literal seat of power and authority. Immediately, John's in the spirit. He's through the open door. He's in heaven. He's like, behold, a throne. Like the, that's the first thing he can get out of his mouth. There's a throne, guys. See him yelling back through the door. A throne! Like It's, it's interesting that John will keep coming back to this throne. 75% of the time the word throne is used in the New Testament. You'll find it in the book of Revelation. There's a throne. And yet it, it's, it's fascinating that it doesn't take long for John to be like, behold, a throne! And then, whoa! There is, there's one sitting on the throne. Not just that there's a throne in heaven, but there's someone on the throne. It's occupied. Occupied by God. You know, atheists try to say that there is no throne. Humanists will say that it's man on the throne. John sees a throne and he says that there's God. Like, I hope you know no matter what's going on in your life, that right now, right now, in heaven, there is a throne that God sits on. And it is the seat of all power and authority through the universe. Nothing happens apart from God's will and his sovereignty. Look at verse 3. John continues, he says, he who sat there. So he uses a, a, he uses a kind of a male pronoun, he, who sat there on the throne was like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, again, in, in appearance like an emerald. Now, as it pertained to the one who sat on the throne, John does his best here to tell us what he looks like regarding his appearance. And that word can be translated like what I can see, what I can make out, what I can articulate. John doesn't really give us a physical description like, like we normally would have. Like he doesn't give us like height, skin, eye color, facial features. No, no, no. He can't make out the appearance in that way. Instead, John, he describes kind of, I saw one and, and he, this outshining of his countenance, his appearance. I can't give you physical features. I can't make them out. I can't see them. But I can tell you what it all looked like. The shining, the outshining. He says, from the one who sat on the throne, the throne, there emanated. Basically, two auras. Again, try to get the picture in your mind. John says there was this first aura emanating from him. It was like a jasper stone. Meaning it was, it was like this perfectly clear, bright, brilliant light. And then he adds that the second was like a sardis stone, this emanation, indicating a deep red, ruby kind of hue. You know, the mention of the jasper and the sardis, is, is, it's interesting. Again, the Old Testament helps us make a lot of sense of, of the new in Re the book of Revelation. According to Exodus 28, the first stone on the breastplate of the high priest was the sardis stone. 
The final stone on the fourth row of the breastplate was the jasper stone. So we have the jasper and the sardis. This is clearly God the Father. That's what we're seeing here, this picture. John, he doesn't give us any details about the throne itself. Whether there were, you know, lots of swords sticking up all over it, something of that effect. He doesn't give us a description of the throne. But he does tell us that around the throne, or or literally in the Greek, encircling the throne, all around it, there was a rainbow, and then he adds, whose appearance was like an emerald. Which means that there was a rainbow encircling the throne, not a rainbow like we would think of, with the spectrums of light, but it was the spectrums of green, like an emerald. It was various shades of green. Um, God the Father's probably wearing a, like a master's jacket. That, that's kind of what I'm saying. Verse 4, John says, around the throne. Again, he's just the throne, the throne. There's a throne around the throne. And that definite article indicates that this is the throne above all thrones. There were 24 thrones or lesser thrones. And on the thrones, on these thrones, I saw 24 elders clothed in white robes. And they had crowns of gold on their heads. Now again, John, he's working his way out from him who sat on this main throne. And he then notices this rainbow around. But then there's also 24 additional lesser thrones around the central one. So you've got God on the throne, and around that, 24 more thrones. God's throne's preeminent, but then you have these 24 thrones positioned in equal distance around it. Now what makes that interesting is that it tells us God is not the only one reigning in heaven. God is not the only one with power and authority. There are other thrones. John takes note that on these thrones sat 24 elders, who were each clothed in white robes and had crowns of gold on their heads. Again, you're going to see this one day with your own two eyes. Now, the grand question (laughs) is who exactly are, like the identity of these 24 elders. Now, one of the main clues to this, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but it's important to answer this question. In Revelation 5, verses 8 through 10, look at it. Just flip a page to your right. John tells us that the the moment Jesus appears and takes the scroll, the 24 elders fall down before the Lamb. Again, Jesus. Each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayer of the saints. We'll get to that next Sunday. But we're told that they, the 24 elders, sang a new song. And here's the lyrics. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us. Circle that. Redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. You've made us kings and priests to our God. We shall reign on the earth. Now, because this song sung by the 24 elders personalizes, you have redeemed us. It personalizes redemption. Not only does this eliminate the 24 elders from being angels who cannot sing such a song, they have not been redeemed, but it necessitates these 24 elders are human beings. So that's the the most simplistic understanding. These 24 elders are men, and by the way, I should add women. 
the word elder here, it, it's not gender specific. So just because we see 24 elders, it doesn't mean that they're all men. So they could be women as well. It explains because they're human. They've been redeemed. Why they're clothed in white. Righteousness. It also explains why they have crowns of gold. This word crown in the Greek denotes a, a very specific crown. This was not a crown that was given you know, to a king because of lineage or birthright. This was not something you were given because of, of something, not necessarily that you did, but inherent to who you were. This kind of a crown was the best, best way of thinking about it, was a crown given like in the Olympics, if you won a triathlon. It was, it was a reward, a crown of gold. Furthermore, because of the reference that, that these elders have been called out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, we can also surmise they're people, men, women. They've been redeemed, but, but they're, they might be Jewish, but they're not connected to Israel. My point is some will try to speculate that 12 are the apostles and 12 are representatives of the tribes of Israel. That only works out because, okay, 12 and 12 is 24. That, that's about the gist of the explanation. Out of every tribe, nation, like the way that it's phrased is it's not Israel specific. This is something else. This is something bigger. Finally, because the song is only applicable to Christians, you have redeemed us and made us kings and priests to reign on the earth. We can say with certainty that these unidentified 24 elders represent the people, God's people, and the throne room. Again, we'll get to this next Sunday, but these 24 elders, there are representatives. It's kind of the way it's being framed. There's a throne in heaven, and then there's 24 thrones around that throne, and these elders, they represent us in the throne room, like any throne room, any hierarchy of power and authority and structure. So these are all representatives. By the way, it's worth noting, you know, John's not the only one that gets a glimpse of the heavenly scene, right? Like There are other places in the Bible where, where people look into heaven and see heaven, describe heaven, the throne room of heaven. You, you'll find accounts in Ezekiel, Isaiah, even Daniel. Do you realize that in all the accounts in the Old Testament of this heavenly throne room, they see the throne, they describe the throne, they describe everything just the way John does, with an exception. No one in the Old Testament sees 24 additional thrones or elders sitting on them. And why? Jesus hadn't redeemed us, hasn't made us. We haven't been raptured, nor are we in heaven. So there aren't thrones. There aren't additional thrones when Ezekiel sees heaven, or Isaiah sees heaven, or Daniel sees heaven, because we're not there yet. I think that's cool. John continues his description. You want to take a guess what he does? Yes, he comes back to the throne. Verse 5, and from the throne proceeded lightnings or brilliant blasts of light, thunderings, which would be brilliant bursts of sound, and voices, kind of trippy. These would be indiscernible sounds and undertones, rumblings. He says that he also saw seven lamps of fire. They were burning before the throne. They are the seven spirits of God. All of this in the description is similar to what we find in Exodus 19 and 20 of the presence of God when it descends and rests on the top, the top of Mount Sinai. Thunderings and, and, and lightnings and voices. It's all, it's all consistent. Fire. 
aside from the presence of God the Father emanating from the throne, John says that before the throne, directly before the throne, again, we can think between the throne and these 24 thrones encircling, so between the two, he says there were seven lamps of fire. So he sees this. And then he explains, so we don't have to guess, these are the seven spirits of God. Now we've already seen that this Old Testament description of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah 6, the sevenfold manifestation of the Holy Spirit. We've seen this already referenced. We commented, documented it, discussed it twice already in the book of Revelation. The new wrinkle here is that not just the Spirit manifesting as seven, completion, but we're also told he manifests as fire, seven lamps of fire. Again, that doesn't lack precedent in much the same way as the day of Pentecost. The, the Holy Spirit manifested how? Cloven tongues of fire resting on the apostles. In heaven, what John is telling us is that the complete fullness and power of the invisible Holy Spirit is on display for all to see. You have God the Father and you have the God the Holy Spirit ever present in the throne. John then tells us, look at verse 6, before the throne, there was a sea of glass. So you're, you're beginning to see how John's in the center of this and he's working his way out, right? Coming back, working out. He now notices kind of the floor. Before the throne, there was this sea of glass. He adds like crystal. Now it's hard to say if what he's seeing or describing was an actual body of water before the throne that was completely still, transparent like crystal. Or if John is saying that the glass, this glass floor, which is so expansive, it looked like it was a sea. Either interpretation could be accurate. We don't really know. He says in the midst of the throne and around the throne, were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. So you good with that? We can just kind of move on. John observes that these living creatures do not rest day and night. I should add that they don't tire day or night. But they keep saying, and in the tense, continually saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You know, it's likely, it's, when I first, when I, when I read this, I was working on my Bible study, and I got to this point, I'm like, you've already been describing the throne, John. Why does it take you like four verses to get to the living creatures? Like if you saw a throne and these creatures, like that might be the first thing you would say. Hey, there was a throne and some trippy creatures flying around them. But no, it's like he comes back and then it's only after this, this sea of glass, right? That he notices these creatures, probably the reflective nature. He's, he's kind of seeing this floor, and they're flying around, reflecting in the sea. And he's like, oh my. You know, he looks up. There's, what are those things? He says that they were full of eyes in front and back. But then he adds that there were eyes around and within. Each of these creatures could fly. Because they possess, each of them, six wings. John describes how one of them was like a lion. Again, he's using the word like, descriptive. Not saying it was a lion. He says, it, like a, it was like a lion. One like a calf. One had the face of a man. 
The fourth was like a flying eagle. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 1 and Ezekiel 10, we're told that these beings are angels. They're angelic beings, specifically classified as a type of angel known as a cherubim. By the way, Lucifer was also a cherubim. Now, knowing that the blueprints of the tabernacle and the temple were patterned after the heavenlies when they were given to Moses, it's not an, ac- an accident that upon the Ark of the Covenant sat the mercy seat. And the mercy seat had on each side, you want to take a guess, the throne room of God, cherubim. Cherubim are all over the tabernacle. Why? Because they're all over heaven. And these are patterned accordingly. It's worth noting that in Ezekiel's description of these angelic creatures, cherubim, he actually tells us that each being was four-sided and that each side reflected the lion, the calf, the man, and eagle. Which means that John, when he's seeing this, he doesn't have kind of the three-dimensional perspective. From his vantage point, from his perspective, he can only see one side of these four-sided creatures, which is why he says they were like a lion, like a, like a calf, a man, and an eagle. Each of them, we know from Ezekiel, have these four sides. Okay, so you're with me. <laughs> doesn't explain much, but you're getting the picture. So what do they mean? Is there any symbolism? Theories range from them representing the emblems of the tribes that were closest to the tabernacle working outward. So in the Old Testament, when they were traveling the wilderness, they would set up the tabernacle and the 12 tribes would encamp around the tabernacle, which was in the center. Again, this is heaven. This is the center. So some think that the four tribes closest, north, south, east, west, uh, were representative of the lion, the calf, the man, the eagle. There's some historical uh, tradition, some evidence for that. You can study it on your own. Some say that, that these four portray the Gospels. Matthew, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus, the ox, the servant. Mark, Luke, the man. John, the son of God. Jesus, like an eagle soaring from heaven. Some, and I think this is kind of a, a unique one, says that all four of these animals represented like the best within their unique classifications of creation. The lion, the king of the jungle, the the ox, the calf, the the beast of the field, man, the excellence of creation, eagle of, of of the air, right? The best beast of the air. Because the cherubim aren't the point, you can study that on your own. As John watches, and this is what does matter, he sees these these angels. But he observes how they don't rest. And they declare over and over and over again, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And the Greek, this threefold repetition, what we would call a triplicate, is kind of the, it's, it's it, within the Greek language, it's the way that you provide the greatest emphasis of something. You repeat it three times. It's kind of our way in English of saying that something was good, better, best. Can't go bestest. It's a threefold. Like it's not just that God was holy. He is the holiest. That's what they're declaring. You know, identical to Jesus' titles that he uses for himself in chapter 1, the angels declare God to be the Lord God Almighty. And that word Almighty is he's the one who held all things in his hand, as well as the one who was and is and is to come, his eternal nature, the great I Am. Verse 9 
Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. We're going to stop there if you're following along with the notes at c316.tv. We're going to punt all of that. I'm running out of time, and what comes next is demand some attention. But I want to close with this thought that's important, a bit of application. The song sung in heaven, For you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power for. So, so that word for tells us why you're worthy. The reason you're worthy is that you created all things. So God is the creator. And then he says, and by your will they exist then we're created. That phrase, by your will, it literally means by your pleasure. You created and they exist. They are and exist. Here's my point. God is worshipped and he's glorified because he's the creator of all things. The song tells us something interesting about creation, which includes you. Why is he worthy? He's the creator. Why do you exist? You exist to bring your creator pleasure. That's what we sing. You're worthy to receive glory and honor, and you created me for your pleasure. Like, if you want to know why you exist, why you were created, why you are, it's, it's not what you do. It's the pleasure you bring to your creator. In fact, I would argue that it is impossible to find meaning, purpose, and any form of satisfaction on this earth until you reconcile that you exist to bring your creator pleasure. If you're trying to bring yourself pleasure, if that's the intent, your goal, your ambition, your motivation to please yourself, you will never be satisfied. Like Mick Jagger saying, I ain't got no satisfaction. I try and 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 I search and I search and I search and I search. Solomon talks about this in the book of Ecclesiastes. I search for meaning and purpose of my life under the sun and all kinds of pursuits, Solomon would say. I sought out sex. I sought out money. I sought out pleasure. I sought out anything and everything you could search for. I was charitable and I was selfish. I tried both to see if they worked. To see if something could satisfy me under the sun. And then he closes the book. Everything is vanity. Nothing satisfies. Everything is vapor. But I looked above the sun. And the whole purpose of man is to obey God and do his commandments. Solomon's point is your job, if you want to find satisfaction, is to please your creator because you're the creation. We sing, for you are worthy. For you are worthy. Is your life flowing from the purpose by which you were created? Is your life bringing your creator purpose, pleasure, 
That's a question you have to ask. But I think it's the applicable one to close with this morning. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and what it says to us.